Russia has infiltrated American politics, mostly through the Republican Party and largely through Donald Trump. We know this, and yet we've somehow all been gaslighted, exhausted, or tricked into sending it down the memory hole. This is Beyond Politics, by the way, the show where we go beyond just politics to look at what's going on underneath in America. I'm Matt Robeson with my co-host, former U.S. Congressman Paul Hodes. And in this episode, we're starting a look at a bigger picture that's so obvious, and yet we seem to have let it kind of recede into the background of our lives. We're going to look at this in a bunch more upcoming podcasts and videos on the Blue Amp channel on YouTube and in other media. But today, we want to begin at the beginning with a set of facts that are a matter of public record, but I bet you've forgotten about them. I have to admit, I did too. By the end of this, we hope we've reminded you of how the KGB began recruiting Donald Trump in the early 1980s and about how all of his behavior since then confirms that whether he's aware of it or not, he is very much an asset of Russia and how he created a conduit for Russia to manipulate and control senior Republicans. I was reminded of all of this in reading a fantastic Substack article from Greg Oliar called Prevail. You can find it and his awesome podcast, by the way, also called Prevail on Substack or wherever you get your podcasts. Two years ago, as we record this, almost to the day, Greg wrote an article on Prevail called Trump Cower Moscow. See what he did there? The subhead reads, the KGB began recruiting Trump in the early 1980s. The prevailing evidence and his behavior shows he is owned by Russia. Why are we still not talking about this? This has become so relevant again right now because of the recent arrest of former top FBI official Charles McGonigal, the special agent in charge of counterintelligence in the FBI's New York field office. Because he went to work for Putin right-hand man, Russian oligarch Oleg Deripaska, directly tied to Russian intelligence and Paul Manafort and the Trump campaign. So we're learning more and more about how the explosion of evidence of Russian infiltration of our politics in 2016 and 2017 was just a tip of an iceberg that goes very deep and is very much still with us today. So let's understand where all of this came from. Greg, so happy to have you on the show. Hey, thanks so much for asking. You write in the article that I referenced at the top there that there is a ton of reporting about how the KGB started a long game of cultivating Donald Trump as an asset going back almost 50 years. Tell us about that. Okay, before we get started on that, just to bring it to the surface here, I, I feel like with a lot of this stuff, we get there's so much there and we get lost in the weeds so much that sometimes the things are very obvious and in our face. So before we go back to 1980, let's start like he fired Comey, Trump did, right? He fired Comey because Comey was investigating the Russia ties. And the day after he fired Comey, he let two Russians into the Oval Office, Kislyak and Lavrov, was laughing with them like they were old buddies and bragging about how he was off the hook now about with the Russia thing because he'd fire Comey. And then he replaced Comey with Chris Ray, his handpick. So basically, he fires the, the guy that's in charge of investigating him and replaces him with his choice for the guy that will now be investigating him. And Chris Ray is another guy who, when he worked at the law firm that he worked for, this boutique law firm, the law firm's largest client was Gazprom, which is the Russian state's gas and oil concern. So you have, it's, he's in the Oval Office with two of Putin's best friends laughing like they're like at a, I don't know, like they're at a college reunion or something. This is really obvious. I and remember Greg, that picture. I mean, I remember yeah. seeing that picture. We talked about it, Robeson. We talked about the picture. We talked about the firing. 
we talked about it, but Greg has really put his fingers. It is like all of this stuff. I'm actually glad you started there because like all of this stuff, it does have this quality of like, okay, you've been caught in a spotlight, red handed, stealing from, I don't know, an electronics store. And so what you do is you go to the police and you say, okay, I was stealing just now. I was taking things that don't belong to me that are valuable, you see? (laughs) And it's like, you're almost trying to camouflage yourself in the very inane obviousness of what you're doing. All right, go ahead. I mean, it's stunning. I think that's part of it. And you referenced the photo, the famous photo. That photo is from the Russian press services because Trump did not allow the U.S. press service to take any pictures that day. Oh my God. Uh, (laughs) It's a red flag with a hammer and sickle on it. You know what I'm saying? So not just a red flag, but- Trump has been consistently through since at least 1980, sympathetic, shall we say, to to the Soviet Union and now Russia and all of those forces. In the piece, I reference reporting by Craig Unger, who wrote this book called American Compromise, which I think everybody should go read. You guys should also, you should think about having Craig on your show because he's terrific. But he wrote in American Compromise, he has a great source, Schwetz, who was a long to worked for the KGB and was, I believe, based in Washington. So a high ranking KGB guy during the 70s, early 80s and knew what was going on. He defected and wound up going into business with, um, you know, good guys working in the, in the US. So we know he's on the up and up now. He's been working with us for a long time. And uh, he said it began in 1980 with, you know, at an electronics store in New York City where Trump was going to buy TVs for his whatever building he was, whatever hotel he was building. And he went to this like electronics store that was known to be or thought to be like a hub of Soviet intelligence operations. So since then, they sort of targeted the guy and it never really stopped. Right in 1987, before that, in 1984, I believe, his Trump Tower starts selling condos to known conduits to Russian organized crime figures. This is also Craig's reporting. And not technically, I guess, illegal, but at the time in the mid 80s in New York City, it wasn't common for like shell companies to buy condominiums. Trump was one of only two people that did it, that allowed it. And, you know, because the money's coming in from crime and they don't, a lot of people at that time didn't want to deal with that. But Trump preferred, according to Craig and these other sources, to deal with crooks because they weren't going to sue him. And they had the cash, you know, it was good for him. So he did this throughout the 80s. In 1987, after meeting somebody at a chance thing, he's sitting next to like, I believe it was the daughter of the ambassador to the U.S. from Russia, winds up going to to Moscow with Ivana, his first wife, who, you know, is from Czechoslovakia, whose parents were hardline communists. So God knows what that was all about and why she, you know, if you look at her history of coming to the United States, it was suspicious, let's say. It wasn't the usual kind of thing. And going back as far as 1977, Czech intelligence, which would have been sharing their intel with the KGB as allies, as as all the Eastern Bloc countries did at the time, they were surveilling the Trumps, including in New York, Anna and Donald. So so there's a link here. They've been the KGB radar for a long time. Yeah. And he goes to Moscow in 87. He stays at whatever the fancy hotel is there. You know, it's obviously bugged and all this stuff. Who knows what he was doing? But and immediately comes home and announces he's going to run for president in 1988. He forms an exploratory committee. It's around this time he first hooks up with Roger Stone, goes to New Hampshire, gives a speech. And basically, 
after that, before he went to Moscow, he was pretty local in his concerns and selfish. And after he came back, he any time he took some sort of position, it was usually aligned with something that Russia wanted you know, him to be saying. So, and this just continued and into the campaign. And I think it was, it was so obvious, I think in many ways that people almost couldn't believe it or couldn't wrap their minds around it. I wrote a book in 2018 as someone who's just a guy following this on Twitter, you know, I'm a novelist or I was then. And I wanted to write a book about that just explained what the deal was with Trump Russia to anybody that might want to know. And I tried to write a short a quick kind of overview of what we knew. It's called Dirty Rubles and it came out, you know, it's five years old, so it's five years old, but I traced, you know, just wrote down all of these links between the campaign and high placed Russians. And there's so, a lot of them. Can I, let me inter interrupt for a moment because Please. in the intro, Matt talked about your article in Substack and there is a riveting paragraph in that article that refers back to the time period you were just talking about 1987 he goes to moscow he announces he's running to president for president and you say between 1988 and 2016 as been, as has been widely and extensively reported trump began to launder money extensively for the russian mafia to the point where he was in effect mob property if not an outright asset of the russian intelligence services in practical terms, there is no real difference between Russian organized crime and Russian intelligence. And as ex-KGB officer Yuri Schwetz put it, quote, the whole Trump organization was turned into a money laundering front for the Russian intelligence community. What happened? And is it just coincidence that it coincided with his 1987-88 attempt, first attempt at being president of the United States? I think everything is, you know, I think everything is connected. And thank you for reading the paragraph and for saying it's riveting. I think it's all connected, you know, and they, when they recruit guys, when they recruit potential assets in intelligence. They're looking for people that they can get to in a variety of ways. I think it's called mice, right? Is that what it is? It's a money, ideology, compromat, and ego. And he, I mean, they must have looked at his dossier and been like, oh my God, this is- Ego. You ego, know, all of, you were born Trump? to play. Yeah. Ego? Like, yeah. There's no, I, and ego, we can, we're going to talk about McGonagall later, but I feel like with Trump, it was more vanity and money and all of, like, all of the things like I think they just were like this is almost too easy you know I can't believe we're gonna make money on this guy this is crazy because he has all of the things I mean when the mob the Russian mob first began to kind of take over the United States from the you know Casa Nostra or to you know make inroads certainly in New York and Florida and elsewhere the main guy that Mogilevich sent over was this guy named Ivanka and they couldn't find him for a long time and then they found him at Trump Tower. And when he wasn't at Trump Tower, he was at like the Trump Atlantic City place. Like he just, they were in there and his name is Ivankov, which sounds strangely like Trump's daughter's name, right? So it's, I, the whole thing is, she's probably named after her mom, but still it's, it pops out at you, you know? And he clearly had, you know, he clearly likes Eastern European women. I mean, that's, his, two of his three wives have been, you know, from there. So I don't know, you know, he, there is a through line. There's never been a time when he hasn't been doing this. And I don't think it has anything to do with ideology. I think they flatter him. I think they give him what he wants. And I think it's an easy way for him to make money. And that's just what he's been up to, you know? Yeah, I want to be clear about that last point there. 
you don't have to be a willing participant in right. a Russian active measure operation to still be a Russian asset. Let me repeat that and say it a little bit more plainly. It's quite possible that Trump is a useful idiot for the Russians. Yes. Yeah. It's quite possible that he's doing what they want without realizing it, because there are a couple of known facts here. Trump is not that intelligent. We certainly know that from his needing to fabricate his grades in order to get into college. And he has a giant ego and he's easily manipulated. We've seen him be easily manipulated. He meets with Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and they manipulate him into doing what he want, what they want. And he says like on Twitter, like, that was great. Maybe I'll just do more of that. And they're like, <laughs> you know, this is a guy who is very prone to manipulation. And so what you lay out here is two very important things. One, is it credible that he was an asset of Russian intelligence? Well, not only is it credible, it's almost a slam dunk. It's almost impossible for that not to be the case. We know he was on their radar. We know they were trying to manipulate him into doing what they wanted. And he has a 25, 30 year pattern, even before he runs for president of doing exactly what they wanted. You know, and the other thing is, we were talking about how all of this is so obnoxiously hiding in plain sight. And you lay out all of these deep ties in your book, Dirty Rubles. But a lot of what you've just discussed here was very much in plain sight. It was very well covered in the media. And you know, you referenced the book, you referenced Craig Unger's book. This is a book that was fulsomely reviewed, was positively reviewed. Kirkus Reviews says it's a must read. The gun's not quite smoking, but the barrel's plenty hot and there are Russian shell casings all around. So there is just a deep well of reporting here that shows all of this and yet, we're inured to all of it. That's, Russia, if you're listening. Yeah, Russia, if you're listening. <laughs> Russia, right, let's, if you're listening. Let's get to let's get to kind of where you kind of intentionally took us, which is the kind of mid two thousands. At the top of the show, it's like let's be clear: this is super obvious. This isn't like, you're not like the world's greatest Woodward and Bernstein investigative journalist. Like, oh yes, he there. is. We they, might, not, come I'm on, not. yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, no, I mean, it's, no, it's like, but that's not even your stock in trade and you've been able to find all of this. Okay, let's take a break. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Matt Robeson. I want to tell you about a podcast I know you'll love because I really enjoy it. It's just chock full of smart, engaging, surprising interviews and reports that go way beyond the usual partisan bludgeoning. You know what I'm talking about. The show is called the gist. It's the longest running news and commentary podcast out there, and it has that kind of staying power because the host, Mike Pesca, just puts forward these really interesting arguments and asks great questions. You'll definitely hear things you don't agree with right next to arguments that make you say, damn straight. Plus, he's pretty funny. Some of the recent segments that I've really enjoyed, he tried to understand the Never Kevin Caucus. Yes, they're nihilistic, but also explained how they're acting in their own rational self-interest. He interviewed Michael Imperioli, you know, from The Sopranos. How about his interview with the guy who ran Stakem's Twitter account and Harvey Weinstein's prison consultant? If any of this sounds interesting to you, listen to The Gist every evening, wherever you get your podcasts. So in 2016, Paul Manafort enters the picture. And wow, is this fishy. He's hired by the campaign, as you write, for free because he's so deeply in hock to his Russian overlords that he's willing to work for free because he needs to literally indentured servitude style pay off his debt to a Russian oligarch. We can get to that. One of his trusted 
colleagues was Konstantin Kalimnik, who is a Russian intelligence officer and also the right-hand man of Oleg Deripaska. I know I'm throwing uh. a lot of Russian names at you, but I mean, this is a very tightly woven set of Russian intelligence, Russian oligarchs, Russian right-hand man to Vladimir Putin. And I, at the time, the reporting of all of this, even though all of this was kind of known, was like, oh, he's an experienced hand in Republican circles. He once ran a Republican convention. This makes sense. You know, that he was hired to kind of get Donald Trump on track. When he was fired in August of 2016, the New York Times lead story about it by Maggie Haberman says in the fourth paragraph, in the fourth paragraph mentions, oh, there was a little flap with him taking Russian money and buries it down to the 24th paragraph where she finally belatedly mentions, yeah, there's a little scandal brewing here. The entire focus was, oh, he wasn't really doing what the Trump campaign wanted him to do. And so it's like the media was sort of, I don't know what, sort of lulled into a sense of nothing to see here. What do we know about this whole Manafort episode? I, you, as you correctly say, when Manafort came aboard, Trump had kind of sewn up the votes, but there was a lot, of, there was a movement led by Ted Cruz where the convention, the RNC in, that summer was going to be contested because there, there appeared to be enough people that didn't want Trump that they were going to unite together and somehow pull something to, to make Cruz the man. I don't know how much better that would have been. I think that's all the same, you know, but his father was, did ass assassinate JFK. So, you know, <laughs> right. right. Um, <laughs> so Manafort as a younger, much younger operative did preside over and manage the RNC. And I think it was 76, which was a contested convention with Ford and Ronald Reagan. So he had experience, like real experience doing this, which no one else really did. So it did make sense from a media narrative perspective to focus on that. Now, and there were like articles about, hey, you know, maybe he's been working for some scummy guys in, in, around the world because he and Stone and Black basically invented that whole thing. Let's lobby for these whole dictators and these repressive, oppressive regimes. We'll just take the money and that's what we'll do. I mean, they kind of almost invented that. Good business. Yeah. I mean, come it's, on. It's, come on. Evergreen. Follow the money. <laughs> <laughs> follow the money it'll keep you in ostrich coats for a long time you know <laughs> afghan rugs and ostrich coats but he came in and the last place he worked was ukraine and i think now certainly especially now after the invasion of Feb last february we know now what that's all about that putin has wanted to get into ukraine for years going back in time now looking at manafort through that lens you see that was his first putin's you know probably one of his first attempts to get into ukraine by corrupting the government and putting his puppet in charge and that's who manafort worked manafort worked for in ukraine so he did you know the same dirty tricks that they tried in the us they had kind of done in ukraine also right down to there was a woman running against them and they did the lock her up thing it was all that they did actually wind up locking her up better emails i guess is my question yeah, i don't know i don't know maybe they did the emails too i don't know but you know it was like when a play premieres on province in provincetown and then they bring it to broadway you know ukraine was <laughs> provincetown so they were doing all this stuff and you know, the media, they did, they missed the story. They missed that. But, you know, maybe at the time it's defensible. Manafort and Trump have known each other a long time. Manafort and Stone were in business since 
I don't know, when did that start? 19, since the 70s. And Stone and Trump have known each other a super long time. So it's not like he's bringing in some guy he doesn't know. He's bringing in a guy he knows, a guy that mm-hmm. Ivanka calls Paul, you know, not our Paul here on the show, just the, the bad Paul, you know, not Holmes <laughs> metaphors. But so, you don't know a thing about <laughs> me, really. <laughs> That's good. I like that. You do good voices. I've intuited that already. So, and then if you want to know about Manafort now, you can just read volume five of the Senate Intelligence Committee's report, because it's all about Manafort and Kalimnik, who the report, the bipartisan report says is a Russian intelligence officer. So who specializes in election fuckery? That's who Manafort was you know, with all the time. And also of note, Manafort because of the whole Ukraine thing, somehow wound up owing Oleg Deripaska like 20 something million and was not going to pay that back because, you know, it doesn't, you'd have to sell the ostrich coats. And the thinking is, or at least it appears that him working for the Trump campaign is sort of a, okay, instead of paying you back, I'm just going to tell you what I know. And he, in certain emails and communications, according to volume five, this is what came to pass. He was trying to play up his insider status to the Trump campaign to, as some sort of payback to Deripaska, who, you know, wanted to get off the sanctions list and all that kind of stuff. So I would just love to know. It, it, this is like a fractal, like, you know, you drill down and there's the same underlying pattern, no matter how far down you go. I would love to know in a deposition under oath with like the force of you know, the rest of your life in the slammer behind it. Who suggested Manafort to Trump at the time? Tom right? Barrick. Like, Tom Barrick. We know that. Apparently. Okay. Yeah. And under what, uh, under what auspices and with what kind of push behind it? You know, that, it's that like, we don't know. Because it's just too perfect. It's so, because remember the context here is there was this explosion at the time of Russian involvement in campaigns. I mean, the Trump campaign was sort of the harbinger, but you see all of these, you know, like in trader, the Victor Vecklesburg cousin, who's now been tied up with George Santos. All of a sudden, he starts giving rampant campaign donations in 2017. In this time frame, he gives 86 contributions all to Republicans, with one exception, Tulsi Gabbard. I mean, do with that what you will. But I, it's just, same, again, same, same. Yeah. yeah, I would just love to know what was going on but anyway all right so too. Wait, I mean, we so, all, yeah. so so greg at the top of the show matt was he talked about this whole topic of trump as a russian asset as something we'd heard about but probably forgotten the question i keep coming back to is why has the reporting about all this been so kind of under the radar so so timid so so loosey-goosey so it doesn't matter about about this. Like in, in the Haberman piece that Matt was talking about, it's been like a collective shrug for the media. Did they get gaslighted by Bill Barr and the Durham investigation? Did what was Mueller just so overwhelming with all of his information that nobody could digest it? And so they just said, uh, whatever. They just we'll just let it go because we can't really read it. There are so many Russian names. There's so much money. Uh, we'll just uh, forget about it. You know, I mean, what why? This is a huge thing. 
It's a huge thing. It's a good question. And probably the fate of democracy depends on the fourth estate doing its fucking job. But it's a very good question. So, Oh, yeah. Oh, by the way, it's just the fate of democracy. Don't worry about it. You, were, you know what you just did? You just did Ben Bradley at the end of the movie, All the President's Men. Nothing's on the line here except for, you know, the fate of America, the presidency and the U.S. Constitution, you know? I met Ben Bradley talked to my journalism class in college. He was a cool guy. Wow. Very intimidating, intimidating presence. So but to get back to the question, there's a couple of things. First of all, the media, quote unquote, is not all inherently bad. It's like the FBI. It's like any large organization of lots of things. Most of the people, if many, if not most of the people who do these jobs are really good, are really honorable and have done crack work. So I was able to write my book in 2018 because of media reporting. That's the irony of all of this, right? We, if not for the media, we wouldn't know anything. But how do they, the thing that the media always sucks at, always historically because of the way that, you know, if it's a newspaper back in the day, it was every day. Now on the internet, you have this constant churning of the cycle. It's bad at nuance. It's bad at context. It's bad at providing a big picture of things. I remember when I was in high school, I think the Iran-Contra thing happened around that time. And I was trying to figure out what it was about. And every article that came out sort of assumed you knew things that I didn't know. And it was almost impossible to go back and find something that hit all the notes. And this particular story with the Russian collusion, for want of a better word, there's so many different pieces to it. And they come out months apart. So an article about Manafort might appear in the you know the national or international section in February. And then Don Jr.'s divorce will be on page six two months later. And they're related, maybe, you know, but they're not obviously related. So it takes it would take a news analysis kind of approach to how news is reported, which simply doesn't exist that I'm aware of in any meaningful way. So that's the first thing. You have these people on the ground digging up sources, writing really meaningful stories, and there isn't anybody there connecting all the dots. And they know this, and they just keep throwing shit out there. I think in my book, I make the analogy of like, it's a locomotive, the Trump thing, and you just, it's throwing shit out of the back of the locomotive, and you just everybody <laughs> stops to pick up the individual pieces of shit, but you have to look at the big picture, where the locomotive's going. What the, it's hard to wrap your, to stop and look back. And I feel like that's my whole career, such as it is with this, is mostly involving stop, let's look back, let's review, let's put it in really simple terms. He fired the FBI director because he was investigating his Russia ties. And then he invited Russians to the Oval Office the next fucking day and, and refused to let american yeah. media take any pictures yes you're right uh, so i, I so just want to know wait, 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 paul's wait. got a follow-up here i just want to note for our video viewers that in from the department of irony the american flag that i had up i have up on my zoom wall as we record this literally started coming down as greg was describing the dysfunction of the media and their inability i am as paul <laughs> asks his this next question i am literally going to go repair the flag because apparently just the force of describing this dysfunction is enough to bring down old glory it may come down it's just down on one it's just down on one side so far don't worry no, about we're not it. dead yet i got that so so greg look the mechanical thing yeah. so here's the guy at the fbi who's in charge of investigating russian oligarchs and he's arrested and after he leaves the fbi who does he go to work for i think if i recall correctly it's 
Jared Kushner's investment company, and he's tied in with Deripaska. And so that was a story for like six minutes. And now we haven't heard another thing about it. Why, why aren't the connections being made? Why isn't this really, what don't we, what is it that we don't know yet? And is the media underselling this piece? Let's take a break. We'll be right back. I think part of it is a rush. In this particular case, it's a rush. You don't want to rush to judgment and make assumptions that we don't know. Now, we do know that Deripaska is involved. We do know that Deripaska's American properties were raided in October of, I think, 21. And then this guy's phones were seized like three weeks later. That we know. That seems like it's probably related because they and we know that they indicted him. You know, and they're not going to indict, in my opinion, an ex-FBI executive like this unless he's really fucked up. So I think we can assume that he did what he did. The real question with this guy is the larger question of the whole New York field office of the FBI and its Trumplandia reputation and how they basically took that Anthony Weiner laptop story and forced Comey, coerced him to write that memo, which is not, you know, something that you want to do. And that- actually, can, can we pause on that for one mm-hmm, second? Sure. I think your Iran Contra were of a similar vintage. Your Iran Contra <laughs> example was really apt, which is sometimes with big scandals like this, you sort of there are things that you kind of remember. So what you but you know, like unless you really sting them, sure, yeah, people tend to. So let's just hit that for a second. So what you're saying is that we know that when Comey. 10 days before the election, FBI director James Comey, 10 days before the 2016 election, announced that he was reopening an investigation into Hillary Clinton. We know that action had significant consequences. It may have cost Hillary Clinton the election. That is certainly the conclusion of the 538 website that looked at it and found that it cost her three to four points, including in critical swing states. So that Comey thing begs the question, why? Why did he announce that 10 days before the election? What you were just saying is that there's been substantial reporting, including in The Guardian, that he did it under duress because he believed that the New York field office, in which the agents were demonstrably pro-Trump and anti-Clinton, that they were going to leak this anyway. And they essentially held a metaphorical gun to his head and said, If you don't announce this, we're going to leak it, which is going to be even worse. So he figured he might as well say it and gain some control of it. Is that, did I summarize that right? I think you summarized it perfectly as far as I know. And this is something he's written about in his book. And there's a movie called The Comey Rule on Showtime, which is really good that goes into it as well. That dramatizes it if you prefer to watch it in this kind of way. So yeah, Comey was between a rock and a hard place. He was afraid that they would release this laptop. There would be shit on there and he would look like he was helping Hillary. Mm. So the mistake he made is that he should have just announced both of the investigations at the same time. As we know, Crossfire Hurricane was going on simultaneously, which is a huge counterintelligence investigation into Trump and his ties to Russia, led by Pete Strzok, by the way, who was our guest last week on the 5-8. Such uh, a good watch. People, yeah. check this out. The f- <laughs> I'm serious. I know I'm supposed to be promoting my own YouTube channel. Subscribe to Blue Amp, please. Subscribe to Blue Amp if you're enjoying this conversation. But also go check out that Pete Strzok conversation. Great get. I'm very impressed. 
He's great. He's smart and funny and uh, and very forthcoming, which is, you know, which is nice. So yeah, that's what happened. So now I've lost my thread here. I'm so sorry. Totally. <laughs> I derailed you. I no, just want to make I... sure that people didn't skate over the Comey thing because it's so significant. But you were talking about the McGonagall arrest and what we don't know about how much further right, right. this may go in terms of the corruption and the bias and what other ties there were going on in the New York field office, which is supposed to be leading this counterintelligence charge against, <laughs> you know, these outfits that are penetrating American politics. It's like in, in Harry Potter, it's the dark arts professor is always the one that winds up hooking up with Baltimore, right? I remember exactly. what I was going to say. Paul, you've asked a question before about why did this guy do this? FBI directors have done this in the past. That was Louis Free went and worked for Semyon Mogilevich, who's the head of the Russian mob, and uh, was thought to be a confidential informant, the FBI, and after he retired, just went and worked for him. So this is something that happens with these top ranking members. And, you know, when you have that leadership there, when you have, hey, we're going to be, we're going to treat these outfits with kid gloves, it's the same thing goes for Trump. In the New York field office, the head of the field office, and Craig Unger writes about this a lot in the book, this guy, James Kallstrom, Trump had cultivated him since the 70s and when he was still just a, an agent and he was in charge of the field office. Like So when you have people at the top of organizations who you know are pro-Trump or whatever it is that they are, it's hard to make inroads in that. And it's the same thing with the media. If you have, I used to work for the Associated Press. I was worked in HR, so I wasn't a reporter, but I sat in on news meetings that they had every morning. And, you know, they sit around a table and people kind of confer and figure out what the stories of the day are going to be. And these are people with a lot of experience and there's a lot of bias inherently that goes into these things. What's news and what's not news? And we all kind of think we know, but everybody's perceptions are a little bit different. So when you're fighting against that kind of groupthink, I think that's also part of why the media kind of shat the bed with this. The group think is that Trump was a clown. He's this reality star. He's kind of a buffoon. He's not really dangerous. Ha ha. It wasn't. This is a guy who's been whose father was whose second generation money laundering guy whose father was mixed up in the crime families in New York City, you know, and went into the family business and only got the TV show because he ran out of money. You know, these guys are dangerous. He's um, was in debt, you know, when he started like really in debt. And I can never remember the guy who wrote this back in 2016, wrote a, a very compelling article about how Trump didn't act like a rich guy. He acted like a broke guy and yeah. somebody who had lost his money. And it was very compelling. And, uh, you know, I still think that he behaves that way. You can't have somebody like that running the fucking U.S. government. It's insane. Oh, yes, but you it, can. I guess and we can. did. And that's here actually, we are. That's such a great bridge because you may be asking yourself as you've listened to this or watched it on YouTube. Okay, this is a great trip down the way back machine. I am activated. I am enraged. We screwed this up. Why does it matter now in 2023? And I think the answer is twofold. One, obviously, this dipshit is running for president again. Duh. But the other reason is I'm what disturbs me about it. And what I think the McGonagall situation kind of raises is we. We feel like the Russia story is old news because they've adopted the football strategy. They flooded the zone. There's so much stuff. It's hard to follow. And it feels like the cliche from an action movie. It's quiet, a little too quiet. So there was this profusion 
of Russian, very overt, very obvious interference and infiltration in American elections starting around 2016. It was all on the surface. And there was the super duper obvious stuff like the firing Comey episode and inviting Russians to go la laugh and you know dance on his grave. And since then, it's gone much quieter. And so there are two possibilities. One is Vladimir Putin said, you know what? That was so much fun. Remember the good old days when we were doing that thing? Yeah, that was great. But, you know, we've kind of closed up shop. We're done with all that. The other possibility is the super duper obvious one, which is they're still doing all this stuff, but they've learned something and they're just, they're being more covert about it. And even then there's still stuff seeping through, like the fact that, and I don't know how I didn't put this together until recently, but there's been so much reporting on the Wagner Group, which is the paramilitary unit that's essentially leading the Russian fight in Ukraine. Just put and on the terrorist list. Just sanctioned. Just, exactly, Paul. Exactly. And it's run by a Russian businessman who's actually a caterer by trade, Evgeny Prigozhin. You should He's, try his borscht. He uh, makes great borscht. It's really something. You never know what's in the borscht, but he's excellent borscht. Yeah, I'll tell you what's in the borscht. He came out and said it. He said the quiet part out loud. He was quoted by the Associated Press November 7th of 2022 saying that he's openly bragging. Oh, yes, we're still interfering in U.S. elections. I'm the guy who's leading it. And so you have this Russian invasion of Ukraine. And the same guy who's leading the military operations there has also been tasked by Putin to lead Russian attacks on U.S. democracy. So we know it's all happening. I guess that brings me around in a very long-winded way to a question to you, Greg, to kind of wrap up on is I am worried about not what we know, but what we don't know. How worried are you about the amount that we're not seeing? These are all good points. I'm glad you brought all this stuff up because I had jotted down notes that you touched on some of the things. First of all, let's talk about Prigozhin, who's you know, Putin's chef, he's known as. The thing about Prigozhin is that he's not a member of the government. He's basically a dude. He's like just a guy who has a business. So there's a remove between him and Putin. So if he gets caught doing something, Putin could say, Paul, maybe you should say it in your better Russian accent. I don't know what this is. Well, I don't know anything about me. Nothing to do with me. So Paul, as a former member of Congress, is essentially Evgeny Prigozhin because he used to be, but now he's not. He's just a private but, guy. Except no, but Prigozhin was never in government huh. at all. And actually, unless being in prison counts as being in the government, which I don't think it was. So you have the one remove. Not and like the, Paul. The other piece is um, the Ukraine piece, okay? And I think this is an easy thing for people to see, that what's going on there is atrocious. It's war crimes. It's horrors. I've written on my Substack about the similarities between, or the parallels between what Putin is doing in Ukraine and what Hitler did in Germany. And they're very eerily overlap, I think, to the point where Putin's doing it intentionally. But right now, it's a litmus test, I think, for people in the United States. Anybody that's watching our politicians, you can tell if someone's on the side of democracy or on the side of fascism based on what they say about the war. If you have a Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's literally just trumpeting Kremlin talking points about Ukraine and saying that it's a waste of money and it's what do we care and blah, 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 and Zelensky's a thug or whatever she's saying, you know She's not working for the United States. She's not on the side of democracy. She's not on the side of America. She's, whether wittingly, unwittingly, I have no idea, 
She is carrying water for Putin. So it's very easy now, I think, where it wasn't in 2016 to look at these people and say, oh, you're saying this is, I know this is bullshit. This is a Russian talking point. If you say something and you're a politician and then you appear on Russian TV and they're talking about how great you are, that's a bad look. You should know as an American, that person is not taking our side. So I don't think the war in Ukraine has any ambiguity to it at all. It's a Russia invaded a sovereign nation, which you're not allowed to do. It's a violation of all international order and got their ass kicked pretty quickly and now is just trying to do as much collateral damage as possible. That's what they're doing. It's not, there's not, there's no justification for the invasion. Nothing that he's saying has worked. He's walked back and revamped the explanations three or four or five times by now. I think when Biden initially said, hey, Putin is going to do this on such and such a day, I think it blew Putin's mind that we were so up in his comms and I don't think he's ever recovered. I think Biden, by the way, has done a wonderful job with Putin in Ukraine. I wish he did a, is doing a better job with Putin here, but that will take at least he's doing a good job on the Ukraine front. So back to your question is, am I worried? I'm definitely worried because the Department of Justice isn't arresting anybody. I mean, we know all these people committed crimes. How many crimes? Jared Kushner has killed a million people because of the pandemic negligence of the pandemic response. He's the media never talks about this. He's often Qatar at the World Cup. Everybody's yeah, yeah, yeah. There's crimes that are being committed by everyone. Trump, you know, he stole the classified documents. I get that the insurrection trying to pin that on him is complicated. Stealing shit you're not supposed to have is not complicated. You know, I talk to lawyer friends and they're like, this is an open shut case. Anybody who just passes the bar could try this. It's one, you know, it's one witness. Hey, FBI guy that searched the property. Did you find this stuff? Uh-huh. Okay. Your witness. Like there's no ambiguity to it, but Merrick Garland didn't want to do anything about it. Now we're waiting on this Jack Smith guy. I don't know what's going to happen, but if they start indicting people, we're okay. If they don't, then Trump is going to continue to do what Mogilevich has done in Russia, which is repeating the line. If I'm such a crook, if I'm such a bad guy, why have I never been charged with a crime? Greg O'Lear, I know we have to get you out of here. So let me leave people on this thought. If <laughs> listening to all of this has been frustrating for you, if it's been, if it's prompted the question of how do we stop this? How do we put a spike in it? I want to go back to something Greg said a moment ago, which is the media in general is not all bad. As a matter of fact, they are a tremendous force for good. Even beginning to criticize them helped bring down the American flag behind me. And they will pay attention to what the public demands they pay attention to. And we can demand that with our actions, our eyeballs, and our attention. If this story, if this is something that you want the media to pay more attention to, then, I mean, I know this is self-serving, but share this episode with people. Go and subscribe to the Blue Amp channel and go and check out the 5-8. Yeah, we have a live YouTube show. It's called The 5-8. And it's called that because it's on at 5 o'clock in LA, 8 o'clock in New York. It's on Friday nights live. It's me and my co-host and friend, Stephanie Koff, who on Twitter is Lincoln's Bible, um, who's done extensive work on Trump's connection, especially to organized crime. And uh, we have a good time. We hang out. We have a little cocktail. We, we talk about the five most fucked up topics of the week for eight minutes each. That's the format of the show. So uh, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Watch the interview that Greg did with Pete Strzok. And also you can check out his Substack. The, you know, the point of all of this, it's called Prevail, by the way, so is the podcast. The point is, 
if we with our feet and our eyeballs and our attention vote for in the marketplace, this is important. We care about this. We're paying attention to it. And therefore the mainstream media needs to as well. If they want our attention, then talk more about this, dig more into it. Then that's the action that you can take right there. That was also my attempt at a clever end of the show. Greg Olier, thank you so much for running through all of this with us. Oh, thanks so much for having me. This was a pleasure, guys.